The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Ah, good morning. It's good to see you. Good to be with you. We uh, are thrilled now to sit under God's word together. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 7. And you're thinking, have we not been in this chapter four weeks or something. And yes, that's true. It's just that good. It has so much to say. So we're going to spend uh, one more moment here in Revelation 7, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 10. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. This is God's word. Let's hear the word of our God. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us exactly what we need to see in order to be faithful to you through all times and situations. Thank you for this vision of our future in Revelation 7 and what it means for our present. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us richly as we consider your word together. I pray, Lord, that you would preach a better sermon than I ever could to each heart and mind listening, that you would apply your word perfectly to who they are and what they need. And I pray that you would help me teach this faithfully and clearly, and that all of your people's passion would be located in exactly the right place. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how would you answer this question? Someone asked you, where has your passion been lately? Where are you getting fired up lately? Where, where's the passion of your heart and your mind most intensely located? Here's the definition of the word passion I'm thinking of. Passion, an intense desire or enthusiasm for something. So where's yours? What's, what's kind of the address of your passion and if you're looking for it, the passion's going to be exposed by what makes you angry. It's going to be revealed in your emotional investment. It's going to be, it's going to be seen in uh, what's getting your most passionate arguments, your, the words that you use. You know, if I, as I ask that question, right, where's your passion most fundamentally located of late? We are all well, well aware, aren't we? These are passionate times. There are many things to be passionate about, and I'm not denying that. What I'm asking is, what's your ultimate passion, your biggest one that defines all the others? How would you answer that kind of officially, like on a, on a survey? But also, if somebody was actually studying the intricacies of your life, what would your life actually show? What are you trying to spread? What are you trying to convince people of? What are you trying to show most fundamentally, most ultimately? I ask that question because 
As we get ready to have one more look at this picture of our future in Revelation chapter 7, we see this incredible picture. It's just an incredible picture. First of all, there's an incredible group of people. It's nothing like we've ever seen before. And this incredible group of people has incredible unity. There's all the diversity you could ever imagine in this group, and yet they have one message, incredible unity. How can this be? It's because of the passion that they share. It's their incredible passion. So what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack this picture and its passion one more time and show us what it means. Then I want to think about three pathways on the way to the picture of that future. And actually, my illustration is terrible because I don't want you to walk three pathways. I want you to walk one pathway. But think about three paving stones on the pathway or three aspects to the pathway, three pieces of truth that we need to apply today in order to get to that future moment where we're all there together, shouting salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. So the picture and three pavers on the pathway, three things we need to see echoing in our lives, three ways we need to walk. So here we go. First of all, let's unpack the picture. First of all, the incredible crowd. You've heard this, a great multitude no one can number. Massive, massive. From every nation. I want to think about that word with you just for a little bit, from every nation. Don't think nations like United States of America, Ukraine, Kenya, That's not actually the right way to think of this word nation. The word, this Greek word ethnos can mean tribe or people group. So think of a a unique kind of family of people with their own dialect, their own culture, their own way of seeing things, an ethnicity. According to the Joshua Project, who counts these things, well, let's think of it like this. Did you know there's, Google tells me there's 195 countries in the world, okay? Maybe you knew that before you came. How many countries are there? 195, okay. The Joshua Project tells us there's 17,442 recorded people groups. In 195 countries, over 17,000 of these ethnos, nations. So uh, those of you who know me and my family know that our, my in-laws were missionaries in Sudan to a people group called the Lurim in the, in, South, in the mountains of South Sudan. They have their own kind of dialect, their own take on the world, their own culture. It's a people group. In the nation of Sudan, there's 162 people groups, supposedly. They went to one. So imagine then this crowd again. There's representatives in this crowd in Revelation 7 from all 17,400 and something people groups united in one voice. This This is the impossible dream, isn't it? This is incredible. Think of all the ways these people groups have mistreated each other, disagreed with one another, fought with one another throughout human history. And yet somehow... Members from each one of them will be found here shouting together in this uncountable number, shouting together with one voice, one message. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you see this this picture of this incredible people. What's their incredible passion? What is it? 
It's glory to our God who has saved us through Jesus Christ. You did it. You saved us. You brought us near to yourself through Jesus and what he's done. They're expressing their passion for God and who he is and what he's done for them in their praise. I want to think with you now just a little bit about what praise is. Praise is a churchy word, right? And what do you say if you're a super Christianized person and somebody says something good and you're like, praise the Lord, okay? That's, I say it. It's cool. The danger with churchy words is they've, you soon forget what they actually mean. What does it mean to praise? And then it sounds relegated to this one kind of like Bible thumper people as if they're the only people who praise. I want to explode that just a little bit. Let's remember what praise is. My definition would be praise is the expression of joy at the sight of something glorious or beautiful. So you take in an idea or a vision or an experience. You, you take in some reality that is beautiful to you. And that excites in you joy. And then, come on, what do you do when you experience that? It excites something in you. Is your goal to be quiet the rest of the day? No, it's almost automatic. What, what, what is it that you must do? You communicate it. You communicate it. Remember when you used to be able to go to sports games? I used to live in Boston, and I was at a baseball game where the Red Sox were playing the Yankees, okay? If you know about baseball, those teams don't like each other. And there was this amazing hit at the last moment uh, where the Red Sox won the game. It was a hit off Mariano Rivera, the closer of the New York Yankees, and everybody was jumping. That old stadium, Fenway Park, was reverberating with everyone jumping. Everyone's hugging people they don't know, giving handshakes, high fives. What is that? What is that? That is praise. It's praise. When you send somebody a picture of something, when you let somebody know the grandchild is born, when you, when you see something beautiful and it brings joy in your heart and you express it, that is praise. And so now you see that praise is the most common human thing that there is and that the height of your happiness is found in moments of praise and communities are actually built on shared praise. When you see something together and you love it, right? Oh, that, that's kind of like a, a foundation for friendship. Praise, that's what's happening here. Did you know that praise is the culmination of our salvation? Praise is the culmination of our salvation. God saves his people so that they can praise. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Four and five. Actually, four to six. Ephesians 1, four to six. In love, he predestined us, that's our Father in heaven, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the, what? Praise. If you actually taste this, that God chose you from the foundation of the world, even though you didn't deserve it at all, and that he has united you to Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, so that you could be his child. If you see what he's done for you, if you really see who he is and what he's done and what he's going to give you, you will praise. And that's a picture of heaven. And some people have stumbled over this idea that God enables people to praise him. Are, you, are any of you feeling that right now? Maybe you'll ask that question at some point. Uh, you read the Psalms and God's like, uh, praise me. 
And, and some people think, hold on, now, when you meet human beings like that, you know some, don't you? Some of you are some sometimes? I'm, I don't know. Um, when you meet human beings who are all about you praising them, how do you feel about that person? Well, you don't like it. First of all, it gets in the way of everyone praising you, right? I'm half joking. I'm a sinner too. Um, but it just, we, we know something about that. It's a lie. It's not true. They're not worthy of it. And then you think of God saying to everybody, praise me. And there was a, one of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis. He was a skeptic towards Christianity who later converted and he struggled with this idea of praise. He writes about how when God said, praise me, it sounded to Lewis like a vain woman who wants compliments. But then Lewis had a revelation. And I want to read to you. It's kind of a longer quote, but just soak it in. I think this is so good about why it's right for God to save us so that we can praise. Listen to Lewis. He says this, the most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Now listen to this. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate that is to love and delight in the worthiest object of all and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme happiness. The catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. To fully enjoy is to glorify in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Wow. Wow. So God is worthy of our praise. He deserves it. He actually deserves it in who he is. Eternal, omniscient, glorious, holy, the triune, one God in three persons. He deserves all our praise. And it is loving of God to enable our praise. What's the best thing that he can give you, even though you don't deserve it? He can bring you in so that you can see and enjoy who he is. Wow. So the pinnacle of the gospel, you guys, is that we get God himself. And that inspires the highest of praise. Look what Paul said in Romans 8, 16. We were looking at this at our Wednesday Bible study. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, listen, that we are who? Children of God. And if children, then heirs. What's an heir? It's someone who inherits. You've been adopted, so you inherit everything the Father has. 
And what is it that we inherit in 17? If children, then heirs, heirs of God. You will inherit God. He will be your God. We will be his people. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, we inherit the kingdom. If you just catch a glimpse of this reality, what's, what are you going to do? You're going to praise. You're going to praise. So again, do you see this incredible picture in Revelation 7? Representatives from every people group united in this one passion, praise of the glory of God who have saved them in Christ. And that's our future forever. Come Lord Jesus, right? You ready? You ready to go? But there's a pathway on the way there. How does this occur? There's three realities, paving stones on this pathway that God will use to actually bring us to this future. It will certainly happen. But there are realities that need to be in his people and in his church for this to occur. So how do you get there to Romans 7? Or excuse me, Revelation 7. How do we get to that place? How do we get to that moment? How is it that you can be accepted by God and brought in so that Bring in his presence doesn't bring wrath, it rather brings praise and his grace. Well, I want to remember just core, utter basics that we should never let go. Basics to what it means to be a Christian. How can you be accepted into the presence of God? You have to receive the gospel. This is the only way. You have to receive the gospel. So let's ask some basic questions. What is the gospel? How would you answer that in a sentence or two? If your friend who maybe is unchurched or doesn't know Christ, so what is this gospel thing you're talking about? What would you say to that person? How would you sum it up? It's so important. I want to look to 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 5, just as a, a basic primer for this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. So that's what he's talking about. And, and what's that word remind mean? It means I've told you once, and I'm going to tell you again. Hey, that's, that's pretty much how we roll around here. How often do you need to hear the gospel? I need it every day. I need it every moment. Paul says, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. Now look at verse 3. For I delivered to you, look at this next phrase, as of what? First importance. Just ponder that for a moment. Where has your passion been oriented? Your emotional life, your words, your relationship. Where's the, where's the, the punch point for your passion? Do, do you hear what Paul says? The gospel is of first importance. There are many things to be passionate about. Go ahead and do them, but you better keep the gospel the main passion. It's got to be the main passion. It's got to be the thing that directs the traffic on all the other passions. Paul says, I want to deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on a third day in accordance with the scriptures that he appeared. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's news. 
It's a declaration of something that has already been accomplished, a victory that has already been won. It is not fundamentally something you do. It is something that has been done. And here's the news. Jesus, the beloved eternal son of God, took on human flesh and became a man. And he is the Christ, the promised king according to the scriptures. He lived the perfect life, fulfilling God's law, loving God with all his heart, loving his neighbor as himself. He did it. He's perfect. He died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. He took on himself the wrath of God we deserve for our rebellion. He took it in our place and he rose from the dead in victory, vindicating that he did it perfectly. It's finished. The work is done. And this is the thing that's of first importance, who Jesus is and what he's done. So that's what the gospel is. Now the next question, how do you get in on the gospel? How is it that the news that is true, whether or not you believe in it, it's just true. How is it that you connect to it so that it's true in your life? That what's been accomplished is given to you. That it counts in your stead. Not just that Jesus died for sins, but that Jesus died for my sins. Not just that God loves, but that God loves me. How do you get in on the gospel? How do you receive it? Many people think, you know, if I was just good enough, got my life together a little bit, got more religious, gave a little more to charity, if I was just a nice person, I'd be good enough for God. And what's your good enough? A little bad habit, if I just, if I just that, if I just, if I just, right, that's the phrase, if I just, if I just did something to clean it up, I could be acceptable to God, I could be right with God. And I want you to know that that self-salvation is an evil, evil joke. It's an evil joke. Here's why it's evil. Number one, it's evil because it insults God. To be righteous on your own, to think you'd be right with God on your own, insults God. God has made a way for you to be righteous with him. And when you say, no, not that way, I'm going to do it my way. How can you possibly be righteous when you're telling God, the righteous one, his way is wrong? Secondly, when we say we can be good enough for God, we're cheapening his standards for righteousness. We're pompous enough to make up our own rules and assume he'll accept them. By the way, if you could do that, if you could make yourself right with God, who gets the praise? Who gets the glory in every seemingly religious system where you can do it? Who gets the praise? You do. That's not Christianity. That's not our God who says, I don't, I don't give my glory to another. No, that's not how we're right with God. It's an evil joke. It's evil because it demeans God. And it's a joke because we don't even keep our, our own standards, much less his. Your own standard for goodness that you apply to other people. Are you perfect? Did you always get it right? You're mad at what that person said? Do you want to give an account for what you've said? You're mad at what that person, their motivation was? Are, are your motives always clean? Come on, when we come before God's actual law, it's nothing to do but surrender. And so then, again, the question, how do you receive the gospel? Look at Romans 3, 22 to 25. Romans 3, 22 to 25. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, 
and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by what? Faith. So we've all sinned. We've all denied God's glory. We believe the lie is not good. His word's not true and we'll replace him. You're not praiseworthy, God. We've all done that from the heart. But undeserving sinners can be made right with God. That's that word justified, where God, the Holy One, declares you perfect. He can, he'll declare you perfect. How can it be? Well, it's through Jesus, that propitiation, the substitutionary atonement for our sins. When you put your faith in Christ, when you turn from your sin and trust him in what he's done, when you believe God, you receive Jesus and all he's done freely as a gift. Just grab that one more time with your heart. It's a gift. It's free, but don't I have to? You have to believe him. You have to turn from other other gods, other treasures. You have to turn and trust and believe him. Believe that God is good on his word, that his promises are true. We receive the gospel by putting our faith in the gospel, faith alone. And that opens the door to satisfaction in God. Look at Romans 5, 1 to 2. This opens a door. This is the paving stone on the pathway to receive the gospel by faith alone. Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, again, by what? Faith. We have, what do we have? Peace with God. All the wrath is gone. There's no enmity. We're right with him. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've obtained access by faith in his grace in which we stand. We stand in the undeserved love of God. We stand in Christ and we rejoice in hope. What's our hope? Of the glory of God. And guess what you'll be doing when you see his glory? Praising. You'll be praising. So this picture Representatives of all nations unified in the praise of the glory of God through Jesus Christ. The path, the paving stone, receive the gospel by faith. Amen? What about all these people groups who right now today have no chance of hearing the gospel? I want to read to you um, a statement from this group called the Joshua Project that cares, this group cares a lot about. All the nations, all the ethnos is hearing about Jesus. And they talk about frontier people groups. Read, look at this with me, frontier people groups. Frontier people groups are unreached people groups with 0.1% or fewer Christians of any kind and no evidence of a self-sustaining gospel movement. There are about, about 5,046 frontier people groups with a total population of 1,939,782,000 people. One-fourth of the world lives in frontier people groups and have almost no chance of hearing about Jesus from someone in their own people group. 
And right now, as we're on the pathway to our picture, we just hit a big rut in the road that should really disturb us. There's entire people groups who today have no chance of hearing about Jesus or what he's done. This was such a burden to the Apostle Paul. This was such a burden. I'm not going to quote it in depth, but later in the book of Romans, he talks about this massive geographical span of places, and he actually says, my work is done in these regions. You know, that would be like somebody saying, well, my work is done in America. You'd be like, really? There's no Jesus or ministry work to be done in America? Well, in a way, of course not. There's tons of work to be done. But that's not what he's thinking of. How many churches did you drive by just to get here this morning? How many Bible apps do you have on your phone? You know, if somebody wants to hear about Jesus, it's not hard. But there are places in the world where there's zero. And Paul would say, that's where I'm going. Where there's zero. And listen to some of his logic in Romans 10. I'll just take this kind of one question at a time. Romans 10, 13, Paul says, for everyone who calls on the, Lord, on the name of the Lord will be what? Praise God, right? This is salvation by faith alone. It's a great picture of kind of your heart and faith. You're calling on the name of Jesus. Save me. I trust you. I need you. Save me. All who call on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Praise God. Faith alone. But how is it that they're going to call on the name of the Lord? Look at Romans 10, 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So in other words, to call on Jesus with your heart to put your faith in him, you have to believe the truth of who he is and what he's done. You have to have that concept in your mind and be convinced that it's real. Otherwise, how will you put your faith in it? Look at Romans 10, 14 again, the second part. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard. And you know the answer. What's the answer? They can't. <laughs> they won't. To believe the reality of the message, you have to hear it. And you have to hear it in a way that is comprehensive enough, and persuasive enough, and true enough that your heart will believe it. Next question, end of Romans ten fourteen. How are they to hear without what? without someone preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Do you see what has to happen for Revelation 7 to come true? Christians need to go to every single people group that has not heard the gospel. We've got to go. Didn't Jesus say this to his apostles? Look at Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And look at these three kind of phases, three realities of this. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, imagine that as your your homeland, <laughs> Fountain Valley, here, your neighbors, your family, right here, these people close, you share the same culture, you share the same ideas, the people you know. You'll, we, we've got to tell 
tell people in our lives about Jesus, right? Our friends, our acquaintances, we gotta share the gospel. Hey, with all the stuff that's so passionate lately, have you forgotten to be passionate about sharing the gospel with somebody? Think of all the messages we've shared. How many were the gospel? You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses to Samaria. They would have all gone at that one. Samaritans are those people. They're the problem with society. You know, do you have any of those in your mind? Do you have any people that are in your like Samaritan box? Go to them and share the gospel. Do you, do you hear this? Fundamentally be passionate about building bridges with people that you think see the world wrong so that you can share the gospel. You'll go to Jerusalem, you'll go to Samaria, Jesus says, and you'll go to the ends of the earth. What's that about? Matthew 28, all nations, all the people groups. You know, I've been getting the question sometimes, you think we're in the end times? And that's kind of a complicated answer. But I do believe Jesus will literally historically return. So obviously with each single day, we're closer, right? But you know, there's, there's a marker that Jesus actually gave us that people seem to forget about when it comes to when he's going to return. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to who? All nations, and then the end will come. We need to see churches planted in several thousand people groups before we can really get to the tipping point, in my view, of Jesus coming back. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? So what ought to be at least a major passion for every Christian somehow? And you want Jesus to come back. You want him to be praised. What will you want to happen? Will you want to share the gospel locally? Absolutely. Will you want to share the, the gospel kind of across those bridges with people who are around but distant? Yes. But what about the nations who've never heard about Jesus? It's the forgotten passion of the church. It's the forgotten passion. Our uses, I don't, just, I don't just mean our church, I mean the church. The, the uses of resources are a little bit lopsided in that the people who have zero gospel get such a small percentage of the effort. And you can imagine why. Because if you go to these places where Jesus has not been named and you start talking about Jesus, your life may get very, very difficult. But this should be our passion, shouldn't it? And you know what's so amazing? Is Revelation shows us that it's the praise that ignites the passion. What could motivate us to care about this? What could motivate us to act on this somehow as we can? The more passionate your praise of Jesus, the more excited you'll be about the proclamation of Jesus. The less vigorous you are about your proclamation of Jesus, the more lukewarm is your praise of Jesus. Listen to what John Piper said in his amazing book, Let the Nations Be Glad. I think this is so right, John Piper. He said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. 
Worship is, and then listen carefully, missions exists because worship doesn't. So in other words, these people groups, they need to worship Jesus. They need to see him. They need to be there. And so because there's no worship of Christ yet there, what has to happen? Missions. How can they believe if they've never heard? To continue, worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not humanity. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You cannot commend what you don't cherish. If, you're not in, if your passion's not the gospel, well, come on, think about the nature of praise. You see something beautiful, it ignites joy in you, and then what do you do? You express it. And you're going to praise. You're going to praise. So to be motivated to proclaim, hey, isn't evangelism praise? Isn't evangelism praise? It should be. If we communicate Jesus and who he is, like Eeyore, you know, the, the Winnie the Pooh donkey. I didn't plan on bringing him up today. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're just down on everything, you're like, oh, Jesus, you know. That's not a good commercial. Um, shouldn't it be like, oh, if you only saw Jesus, if you only knew. And people might not believe, but they should at least get the idea, this person is like, even though life could be hard, even though they're discouraged about a million things, even though they've got all sorts of other passions, even, even though things are difficult, that person was really into Jesus and wanted me to see it. If the gospel is our main passion, we'll be invested in proclaiming it. So we see, I think, from this point, all Christians need to be tellers of the gospel, right? All Christians. And of course that's true because if you're a Christian, you're going to praise. And if you praise, you're going to want to proclaim. I'm not standing before you as the uh, courageous one who always is bold and says the right thing at the right time. That is so not me. Uh, I mess up all the time. I want to do better at this. I'm convicted by the words I'm saying. But I'm feeling them, aren't you? We've got to share the gospel. Is that your passion? Would people around you who know you very well say, the main thing for that person is Jesus? All Christians are tellers. Some Christians are goers. Some Christians, they say, you know what? We're gonna give up everything in this life so that we can go to that unreached group and let those who've never heard hear. Some Christians are goers. It's a unique and amazing call. And I think it'd be amazing if somebody listening to this went home after church and said, you know what, maybe that should be us. Some Christians are, gro are goers. The rest of them need to be senders. Not everybody can go and do this. I would never say that. I'm not doing it. I'm a pastor here. But even though only some Christians should be goers, all Christians should be senders. We should support that work. 
I mean, think what Jesus said. The gospel will be preached to all nations. Then the end will come. Giddy up. And we forget. We forget. So how can we be senders? At our little church, we love to support two groups. We support Reach All Nations. That's a church planning effort in India. And they hit places where um, percentage of Christians is very low. And they're targeting an unreached people group. I also want to bring up a group called Radius International. I think I have a little slide for them. Radius International, their training facility is just down in Tijuana. I'll just read to you what part of their mission is. Radius says, Our ambition is to bring the gospel to unreached language groups of the world that have no access to it in their language. It's so important, in their language. We are committed to seeing a healthy, viable, contextually relevant, and reproducing church in the language groups we engage. For this to happen, cross-cultural workers must be committed to staying past, merely having believers to having a healthy church. I love that vision. A healthy church in every people group. That's what Paul meant when he said, I have no more work to do in these regions. They all have a local church. Amazing. All Christians are tellers. Some Christians are goers. Others are senders. And the rest are disobedient and need more passion in their praise. So this picture in Revelation 7, these, all the nations represented in praise to God for his salvation in the gospel, the first paver on this path was receive the gospel by faith alone. Aren't you, aren't you glad you're not saved by how passionate you are for missions? <laughs> receive the gospel by faith alone. And then spread the gospel so that others can receive it by faith alone. So they can hear the gospel and believe. Third paver on our pathway. Many things are worthy of your passion today. And we do not need to all have the same passion for every situation in life, right? I thank God for the gifts so many of you have and the ways you're passionate about this or that or the other. But having a secondary passion as the ultimate passion will destroy your life and destroy a church community. Idolatry is just this far away, isn't it, with any good thing. We make the good thing the ultimate thing. We want to keep Jesus Christ the ultimate thing. And we need to cultivate that in our community. We need to cultivate that in our community. Praise, and not just singing songs, though I love to do that, but genuine praise from the heart transforms your life because it's honestly about what you find most beautiful and most wonderful. And we, listen to Jesus, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know you're, dis you're my disciples. If what? If you love one another. Why would you want people to know that you're Jesus' disciple? You ever ask that question when it comes to this verse? He's assuming that you really want people to know that you're his disciple. That's assumed in this line. He's telling you how that can happen. But why is it that we would want all people to know that we're his disciples? 
Because he's beautiful to us. Because we praise him. He's our joy. I want you to know that I love Jesus because Jesus is best to me. That's the only way it makes sense. Which means if you want to praise Jesus, by, all, all, by this all people will know you're my disciples. If you what? If you love one another. See how praise affects love? 1 Peter 4.8, above all. That's kind of a passion phrase, right? Above all. What does above all mean? It's more important than some other things. Keep loving one another. What's the next word? Earnestly. What does earnest mean? Go after it. It means you're passionate about it. So it's love covers a multitude of sins. That's great. Guess what else that infers? It infers we're going to sin against one another. <laughs> we're going to be offended by one another. It's going to be difficulty. But as we love one another earnestly, we can overcome that because Christ has overcome it for us. I'll close with this. I just want to fly over a section in Colossians 3 and show you how when Christ is all, so he's your passion, he's your praise that transforms your community. There's like three just kind of waves I want to show you. The first wave is put to death. The second, the core of it, the anchor is Christ is all. And then the third is put on then. So when Christ is all, this is what you would put to death, and this, was, this is what you would put on instead. And when, when Christ is all, that means he's your praise. He's most beautiful. You, you want him. You love him. When Christ is all, this is what you put to death. This is what you put on. Listen to Colossians 3, 5. Here's the first wave. Put to death. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once... In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Read, read the rest of this with me, end of verse 8. Put them all away, what? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put it away. Why would we do that? Here's the answer, 9 to 11. Do not lie to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But what? Christ is all. And in. All. How is it that he's in all? By grace through faith. That, that picture in Revelation 7 can be possible because it's not the ethnicity that gets you in or it's not the performance that gets you in or it's not the anything that gets you in. It's Christ that gets you in by faith alone. If you have Christ, you're in. And if you're in, he's your praise and you want to put some things to death. And now Christ is all. And that defines our relationship together as a local church. We sang it in the song today. Give us eyes to see each other through your only son. Verses 12 to 14. Put on then, since Christ is all. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. Patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, what? Forgiving each other. To what extent? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also 
must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I like the use of the musical word there. Harmony is two different notes, right? And sometimes when a kid comes up and bangs on the piano, you're like, stop. The different notes are clashing with one another. When you hear some people who can, who can use music and they use different notes and they complement one another, all of a sudden it's more beautiful. It's more beautiful because the unity in diversity is a new layer of glory. If we love one another, that's what we can be like. And that's the picture in Revelation 7, isn't it? Every ethnos seen for what it is, their culture, their, their language represented. The diversity is seen, but they have unity in one passionate praise, the glory of God and his salvation through Jesus Christ. So we are on the road to that place, and one day we'll be there. Your picture will be in the snapshot of all the ethnic, all the peoples, praising God. But the pavers on the way to that, what are they? Believe the gospel by faith alone. Spread the gospel so that others can believe by faith alone, especially those who've never heard. Live the gospel in our local community. That's how the world will know. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us by faith alone. I pray for anyone who's listening who's not a Christian and is thinking about this, that you would just convince them that as they would look to Jesus and trust in him, you forgive, you wash clean, you embrace, you adopt, you proclaim. Um, they're your children. So save people today, Lord, we pray. Move our hearts towards faith in Christ. And we pray that as we value the gospel, that it's our main passion, we pray that we would be motivated to share that main beautiful passion, that we would share the gospel with our Jerusalem, the people nearby, with our Samaria, those people. And with the ends of the earth, Lord, we pray that we would support the growth of your church in places where people have never heard your name and we pray that in our own lives, our own community here, we would look like the gospel in the way we live towards one another. Do this, God, for your glory. We thank you that you are, and we thank you that you will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be with you all. So glad you came. Have a great week. Love the gospel. Spread the gospel. Live the gospel. See you next time. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.